Since the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 1863, the two, George Gordon Meade and Robert E. Lee and their respective armies had shadowboxed down in central Virginia. The sparring continued throughout the fall and winter, but in spring, there was a new federal presence, and he meant business. General-in-chief Ulysses S. Grant now wore a third star, the first true lieutenant general since George Washington. And rather than be mired in political intrigue in the capital, he chose to travel with Meade's Army of the Potomac. Before, Union generals ordered the Army of the Potomac forward, gave battle, retreated, and then sat on its haunches for months at a time before the next offensive. That would not be the case come spring of 1864. U.S. Grant was going to give battle and do so in relentless fashion. And so in May, he launched a campaign unlike anything the Federal Army of the Potomac had ever experienced before. This is the story of the first battle in what would be called the Overland Campaign. This is the story of the first encounter between Lee and Grant. Before we begin, a suggestion. The Battle of the Wilderness was fought in a frowning maze of secondary growth and underbrush. The woods and underbrush so thick that some officers during the two-day battle resorted to the use of a compass. In an effort to better understand the placement, movement, and attacks, please refer to maps provided. Please particularly note Tuning Farm. The Orange Turnpike, Saunders Field, The Orange Plank Road, Brock Road, Widow Taps Field, and The Unfinished Railroad Cut. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Great generals require great lieutenants. And that is certainly what General-in-Chief Ulysses S. Grant hoped he might find when in 1864 he opted to be in the field with the Army of the Potomac. For what the three-star general planned, he would need solid officers and resilient men, men that would respond when asked to do what they might believe impossible, to beat down Robert E. Lee and his army. To achieve that, Grant would need shock troops, and in Meade's army, that meant Major General Winfield Scott Hancock's 2nd Corps. Now 40 years of age, Hancock's Corps, the Army's largest, was the one that had repulsed the picket Pettigrew Trimble charge at Gettysburg. To assist, Meade's 5th Corps was under the hero of Little Round Top from Gettysburg, Major General Governor K. Warren. At 34, he was Meade's youngest corps commander. A scholar, he taught math at West Point, where he graduated second in the class of 1850. Meade's favorite, Warren was compulsive, meticulous, brilliant. He was also intense. 
He could be curt and rude and seemed to rub everyone wrong. He was admired by his men, but detested by officers. Of his four division commanders, one was Brigadier General Charles Griffin, who at 38 was a Buckeye and West Point grad who could be quite fiery when his dander was up. Another was 56-year-old Brigadier General James Wadsworth, who attended both Harvard and Yale, and though armed with a law degree, never practiced. He was also reputed to be the wealthiest man in the Army. And then there was Meade's 6th Corps, commanded by Major General John Sedgwick, known to his troops as Uncle John, The 50-year-old was an affable, scrubby, bearded bachelor who loved solitaire. Though methodical, he was beloved because he looked after his men. Then there was an orphaned corps, if you will, the Ninth, which was led by a 39-year-old star-crossed Major General Ambrose Burnside. Because he was senior in rank to Meade, his corps was placed under Grant's direct command. Standing between Grant and Richmond was, of course, the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, and it was led by R.E. Lee. At 57, he may well have been, at that time, the most famous general in the world, and maybe the most revered. On April the 29th, At a review of his first corps in Gordonsville, Virginia, a chaplain mused aloud to a staffer of Lee. Does it not make the general proud to see how these men love him? The response? Not proud. It awes him. These were his lieutenants. In command of his first corps, 43-year-old Lieutenant General James Longstreet. Born in South Carolina, he was a blue-eyed, six-foot bear. He disliked the domination of Virginians among the Army of Northern Virginia's officer corps, and they reciprocated. Jeb Stewart, who seemed to get along with everybody, said of Longstreet, A man of limited capacity who acquired a reputation for wisdom for never saying anything. Yet to Lee... He was his old war horse. Lee's second corps was under 47-year-old Georgetown and D.C. native Lieutenant General Richard Stoddard Ewell. Harshly criticized for his performance at Gettysburg, he was egg-balled and had a beaked nose. His eyes bulged, and when excited, he had a high-pitched lisp. Often he deferred to one of his division commanders, and that was Major General Jubal Early. Also 47, old Jube hailed from Franklin County, Virginia. Early was cantankerous and a misogynist, and given his vinegar-soaked personality, Lee called him my bad old man. Slender, frail, and prickly Lieutenant General Ambrose Powell Hill, 38, led Lee's 3rd Corps. A splendid brigade and divisional commander, Corps command seemed to have poisoned his initiative. Hill's 2nd Division was under 38-year-old Major General Henry Heath, perhaps the only Confederate officer Lee called by his first name. Some of the main players identified, now the play itself. As March 1864 neared its end, something was afoot. Wives were sent away from the Union encampment. So, too, were sutlers. For what was coming, 
numbers were a concern. Because about one-half of the North's fighting men were soon to be discharged, incentives were offered for veterans to re-up. For more, Grant, now 42 as of April the 27th, he ordered heavy artillerymen from Washington City to the front. Unnecessary cavalrymen became foot soldiers. To facilitate the mobility he wanted, headquarter wagons were slashed to just one per regiment, one per brigade, and two per division. Those reductions meant that extra teamsters and mule skinners were issued muskets. To rob manpower from the Confederacy, prisoner exchange ended. For the coming campaign, Grant had some 122,000 men. Lee about 61,000. To get at or around Lee, there was a natural barrier, the brown, flat, 200-yard-wide expanse of the Rapidan River. Then, once across, a forbidding landscape, a 12-mile-wide, 6-mile-deep tangle of wood and undergrowth known as the Wilderness, where a year earlier there had been the bloody Battle of Chancellorsville. Lee expected Grant, but was uncertain which flank he would try to turn. On May the 2nd, 1864, atop 700-foot-high Clark Mountain, the Confederate chieftain watched the huge blue serpent begin to uncoil and predicted, Grant will cross by one of these fords and attempt to swing by our right. It unfolded just as he predicted. Early Wednesday, May 4th, the fateful overland campaign began. Warren's V Corps crossed first at Germana Ford. Next came Sedgwick's Sixth. Six miles east, Hancock's Second Corps crossed at Eli's Ford. So too crossed 4,300 wagons, 835 ambulances, and enough telegraph wire to allow communication in the field. What awaited all those in blue who splashed ashore on the south bank of the Rapidan? Seventy square miles of dense secondary growth and thickets. Two main roads cut through it, the Orange Turnpike and the Orange Plank Road. Both ran east-west. By 9 a.m. of the 4th, with Lee's prediction confirmed, he ordered Ewell's 2nd Corps to move east on the Orange Turnpike and to the south, Hill's 3rd via the Orange Plank Road, the two corps separated by some two to three miles. Longstreet's 1st Corps, which had recently returned from service in northwestern Georgia and eastern Tennessee, was still 42 miles away to the west. Grant wanted to pass by Lee's right, but the gray fox would not allow it. That's why he sent Ewell and Hill eastward to intercept Grant and Meade's force in the wooded maze, where superior numbers and arms might be neutralized. Grant himself crossed the Rapidan around noon with his coat pockets filled with some two dozen cigars. Out of character, he wore a belt and a sword. As he crossed, a reporter asked General Grant, about how long will it take you to get to Richmond? And Grant answered, I will agree to be there in about four days. That is, if General Lee becomes party to the agreement. But if he objects, the trip will undoubtedly be prolonged.
Soon thereafter, he learned that Lee did indeed object. For Grant was informed that Confederates under Ewell were advancing toward Meade's 5th and 6th Corps. To counter, Grant ordered Burnside's 9th Corps to advance. By early afternoon, the Army of the Potomac, given Lee's response, halted. Hancock's 2nd Corps was bunched around the year-old ruins of the Chancellor Mansion, Joseph Hooker's headquarters a year before. Five miles west, Warren's 5th was near Wilderness Tavern on the Orange Turnpike. Sedgwick's 6th covered Warren's right all the way back to the Rapidan River. As night fell on the 4th, the two armies were only about five miles apart. Early the next day, Thursday, the distance closed when Lee ordered Ewell to make contact. Grant hoped to get south of the wilderness, get out in the open where his numerical and artillery muscle might be brought to bear. And to do that, he ordered his people to move at 5 a.m. But there was delay. By 7 a.m., the vanguard of Warren's 5th Corps did reach the Tuning Farm, about halfway between the Orange Turnpike and Orange Plank Road, and Hancock's 2nd Corps moved similarly. Yet all that ground to a halt when Warren's skirmishers ran into Ewell's men pushing east. Lee's instructions to his 2nd Corps commander, delay the Federal advance, but avoid a general engagement. Before he would throw a concentrated punch, he needed Longstreet's 1st Corps on the field. When Ewell's men made initial contact, Meade abandoned his attempt to get around Lee's right. In fact, he decided if Lee wanted a fight, he would give it, and so ordered Warren and Sedgwick to attack Ewell. Warren on the left and Sedgwick on the right. It sounded good on paper, but Sedgwick's 6th Corps was having a difficult time advancing along a narrow road from the Rapidan to the Turnpike. And though Warren was ordered forward, he did not want to go in alone. Therefore, the attack that Meade wanted was delayed until the 6th Corps could arrive. While Warren waited, and it was all morning long, Ewell's men, obeying Lee's orders to not bring on a general engagement, dug in. As time passed, and despite Sedgwick's absence, Meade badgered Warren to go in alone. And so, both forces, Ewell's and Warren's, ebbed to an old cornfield on the turnpike. Saunders Field, though filled with brambles, was 400 yards deep, 800 yards wide, and was one of the few places where there was any open ground. Finally, without Sedgwick, Warren relented to Meade's repeated demands. Just past noon, Brigadier General Charles Griffin and his division formed up. 400 yards away, Confederate Major General Edward Johnson's Confederates, Louisianans, North Carolinians, and predominantly Virginians waited. Griffin's three Union brigades lined up in classic shoulder-to-shoulder fashion. But across the way, an evolution in defensive warfare was taking place. Ewell's men had thrown up breastworks. Finally, about 1 p.m., one of Griffin's brigades moved out in the open the 140th and 146th New York, the 91st and 155th Pennsylvania, and components of seven United States regular units. 
Under great fire, they crossed Saunders Field and struck Johnson's Confederate line, but without support, fell back, save the two New York regiments. Needless to say, the 140th, without support, sent 525 men in and suffered 255 casualties. Add the losses in the 146th New York and of the 1,600 that made the early afternoon attack, 567 were down. It was tough going on the north side of the turnpike, but on the southern side there was some Union success. Elements of the Federal's famed Iron Brigade made contact and actually broke the Confederate line. However, again, without support to exploit the breakthrough, success was temporary. Ewell called up Jubal Early's division and men from Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia threw the Iron Brigade back. Though severely tested, Ewell's men, with timely reinforcement, had held their ground. It was one of Ewell's finest hours as he fended off attack after attack, all as Lee wished without bringing on a general engagement. Truthfully, he had help, for in Meade's rush to attack, there was little support and coordination. After Griffin's attacks ended unsuccessfully, Griffin spurred his horse to Meade's headquarters, which was about a mile away. It was around 2.45 in the afternoon, and as he rode into the yard, there was Grant, who, with all his orders given, was seated with coat unbuttoned on a tree stump, whittling. An angry Griffin leapt off his horse, ignored Grant, and went straight for Meade. Laced with expletives deleted, he reported that his men had driven Ewell three-quarters of a mile, but was never supported. He cursed his corps commander, Warren. He cursed Sedgwick's 6th Corps, which never gave aid, and while at it, the whole Army of the Potomac in general. Meade listened, and Griffin, after venting, turned and stomped away. Grant got up, approached Meade, and inquired, who is this General Gregg? You ought to arrest him. Meade approached his superior and standing directly before him, as would a father to his son, calmly began to button up Grant's coat. And as he did, he explained, It's Griffin, not Gregg, and it's only his way of talking. Meanwhile, as the afternoon progressed, more and more units from the Union Army arrived, formed, and were ready to be sent in. Around 4 p.m., Hancock's 2nd Corps arrived at its objective and joined a 6,000-man division under Brigadier General George W. Getty at the strategically important intersection of the Brock and Plank Roads. One hour later, that combined force attacked A.P. Hill's Confederate 3rd Corps. Hill was not feeling well, so Lee, in person, and Hill's lieutenants shouldered the crisis. It was one of the Third Corps' finest hours. One of its divisions, the 7,000 men under Major General Harry Heath, stymied four Union divisions that totaled 33,000. Still, Lee was extremely worried about the two- to three-mile gap that existed between Ewell to the north and Hill to the south. Grant knew it existed, and so ordered Burnside's Ninth Corps to hit it, but they never got there that day, in part because of the snarled nature of the countryside, and, well, it was Burnside. 
Nightfall brought a halt to the confused collisions. During the night, many slept where they were and on their arms. Units were scattered. Any wounded between the lines were left to care for themselves. Fires created in the underbrush by black powder discharges threatened to consume abandoned wounded and acrid smoke reminded many of what hell must look like. Those that could slept, but on that moonless night there were many who could not. In lieu of rest, axes were busy. Both armies threw up breastworks and orders were distributed. Throughout that Thursday the 5th, Lee had been battered, and he expected the same the next day. He was worried and had right to be, for Longstreet's 1st Corps was still not on the field. Although that corps had marched 32 miles on the 5th, they were still 10 miles from the battlefield. Lee wanted Longstreet's corps on the scene by 1 a.m. of the 6th. But for whatever reason, Longstreet's men didn't begin their march to cover those last 10 miles until 1 a.m. That meant that Hill's beleaguered Third Corps was not reinforced. Those men, and particularly Henry Heath's division, were beyond exhaustion. So tired they were allowed to rest, and so did not dig in in part because Lee intended to strike the next day. However, it was Meade and Grant who struck first. Fully aware that Longstreet's Corps and a Third Corps division under Richard H. Anderson, some 20,000 Confederate infantry, were not up, Grant ordered attacks. Hancock's Second Corps was to hit A.P. Hill's exhausted men on the Orange Plank Road, and Sedgwick and Warren were to strike Ewell to the north up on the turnpike. And with both wings of Lee's army engaged, he wanted Burnside to pierce the Confederate center. The overall significance of the plan? Hancock's second, Warren's fifth, Sedgwick's sixth, and Burnside's ninth corps all attacking? Never before had a general in the east concentrated his entire attacking force against R.E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. It was to begin at 4.30 a.m., first light, but was pushed back a half an hour. At 5, a signal gun sounded, and Hancock's 2nd Corps came on in three lines. Joined by Wadsworth Division from the 5th Corps and Gettys from the 6th, all advanced on a front that stretched one mile in length. Keep in mind that Hill's men, spent from their fight the day before, had not entrenched now crashed over them a 20,000-man blue avalanche. From right to left, Hill's corps broke. In an effort to stem the advance, some Confederates propped up Union wounded in front of trees in the hope that Federal fire might be suppressed. It did not work. While Hancock was elated, he was concerned about one aspect of the combined attack. The Ninth Corps was not up. When Hancock learned that Burnside was late, he muttered bitterly, I knew it. Yet despite the Ninth Corps' tardiness, Hill's men fell back, some back into an open area known as Widow Taps Field. And those that did came face to face with their army's commander. To South Carolina Brigadier General Samuel McGowan, a distraught Lee blurted, my God, General McGowan, is this splendid brigade of yours running like a flock of geese? 
McGowan answered. General, the men are not whipped. They only want a place to form, and they will fight as well as they ever did. Lee's only organized force at that place and moment, prepared to resist the Union breakthrough. Well, the only thing there was Lieutenant Colonel William T. Pogue's 12-gun battery, and canister from those guns staggered Wadsworth's Union division. No matter, a concerned Lee ordered that wagons be prepared for withdrawal. One of Lee's staff overheard him ask under his breath, Why does not Longstreet come? Confederate defeat hinged on Pogue's guns and the tangled secondary growth of the wilderness which broke up Union attack formations. For Lee, it was bad. And then it got worse. From the woods to his immediate east, the 4th and 17th Maine broke into the very clearing where Lee sat astride his Mount Traveler. It was about 6.20 a.m. The sun was just climbing above the trees, and seen through the lingering and pungent smoke, it was blood red. Incredibly, a Confederate answer. From out of the west, the sound of shuffling men. It was the vanguard of Longstreet's First Corps, men led by Brigadier General John Gregg. Flushed with excitement, Lee asked, General, what brigade is this? And Gregg answered, the Texas Brigade. Caught up in the moment, Lee exclaimed, Hurrah for Texas! I am glad to see it! With hat in hand and composure gone, he ordered, Go and drive out these people! Greg turned to the Texans and Arkansans and shouted, Attention, Texas Brigade! The eyes of General Lee are upon you! Forward march! Then another moment, a frozen one one that men that were there would remember for the rest of their days. There before all, their beloved commander rose in his stirrups, hat in hand, and filled with the aura of battle, rode forward with the some 800 men bellowing, Texans always move them. The effect was like a bolt of lightning. It was electric, so much so that one of Gregg's couriers, Leonard G., with tears streaming down his face, swore, I would charge hell itself for that old man. Then to their horror, all realized that Lee was actually attempting to lead the charge. Men slowed, some halted, and suddenly a chorus was taken up. Go back, General Lee, go back. Assured that he would do so, the 800 stormed forward. Within ten minutes, nearly half were down, including Gregg. But two more brigades, Henry L. Benning's Georgians and Evander M. Law's Alabamians, joined them. They streamed forward eight abreast. Two South Carolina brigades, one under Micah Jenkins and the other formerly under Joseph Kershaw, added weight to the assault. As all rolled forward, Longstreet, among them, repeated, Keep cool, men. We will straighten this out in a short time. Keep cool. Now it was Hancock and his corps who were in trouble. Longstreet's juggernaut drove men in blue back over ground they had taken earlier. By 8 a.m., five Union divisions had been mauled, and A.P. Hill's line was restored, but Longstreet's attack was spent. Opposing forces now glared at one another. A quick aside as to events to the north on the turnpike. Action that began about 4.45 a.m. 
there. Although Grant had ordered both Warren and Sedgwick to attack and pin Confederate troops from assisting Hill to the south, Ewell beat the two Union Corps commanders to the offensive punch. Jolted from their initiative, both Warren's V Corps and Sedgwick's VI were of no real consequence the rest of the day. Now back to the South. Both Hancock and Longstreet sought opportunity to seize or regain initiative. Confederate opportunity presented itself when Brigadier General Martin L. Smith, Lee's chief engineer, made a discovery which he reported about 10 a.m. Smith, a native New Yorker who married a Georgia girl and adopted her allegiances, found that just to the south of the Plank Road there was an unfinished railroad bed. If utilized, it offered a route around Hancock's unprotected left flank. Four Confederate brigades were sent to fill it. Undetected, they pushed forward and at around 11 a.m. struck Hancock's exposed Federal flank. In less than an hour, some 20,000 men in blue were driven back as Confederate forces chewed their way through to the Orange Plank Road. As Hancock told Longstreet after the war, that day you rolled me up like a wet blanket. The vital Orange Plank and Brock Road intersection was up for grabs, but thanks to earlier preparation, Hancock's men fell back to fortified positions, to stacked and reinforced logs banked with earth and fronted by felled branches. Those breastworks stymied the Confederate attack around 1230, but Federal initiative that began the day now had been buried in blood and casualties. And it wasn't only reserved for common soldiers. In the confused fighting just north of the Orange Plank Road, where federal forces were also trying to stem the Confederate surge, one officer, James Wadsworth, was conspicuous in the thick and tangled fighting. Under fire with a pocket of men trying to check Confederate advance, his horse panicked, bolted, and carried him toward men from Alabama. 57-year-old philanthropist and warrior gained control of the reins and turned the animal back toward his line, but a volley of Confederate fire found him. One bullet tore through the back of his head. An aide, before escaping, found the slumping general and lowered him to the ground. Wadsworth lingered until the 8th of May before finally passing. There was more command tragedy. Riding forward on the Orange Plank Road, Longstreet, Brigadier Generals Jenkins, Kershaw, and their staffs pushed ahead to drive home more Confederate attacks. As they did, they rode up and threw men of the 12th Virginia, who were scattered both north and south of the Plank Road. Their confused crossfire led to tragedy. With Kershaw and others screaming, Friends! A lead projectile tore through Jenkins' head and unseated him from his mount, dead at 28 from friendly fire. Then, too, First Corps Commander Longstreet was hit. His adjutant, Lieutenant Colonel Moxley Sorrell, saw his heavy-set commander lift straight up and then drop down hard. A confused look clouded his face. Blood spurted from a gaping hole in his neck and from the exit wound behind his right shoulder. Dr. Dorsey Cullen rushed forward, found Longstreet choking on his own blood and tried to staunch the hemorrhaging. The irony of what had occurred? Incredible. Stonewall Jackson, 
wounded by his own men on May the 2nd, almost one year to the day, and within a few miles of Longstreet's wounding, both felled by friendly fire. Unlike Jackson, Longstreet survived, but he would be knocked out of the war for six months. The confusion created by his wounding created a lull in the fighting and bought Hancock time to bolster his defense along Brock Road. Major General Richard H. Anderson, though a division commander in A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps, assumed command of Longstreet's 1st Corps. During the lull, incredibly, Lee and Grant both looked to land another blow. Grant wanted to find advantage in Burnside's eight-hour tardiness, use his late arrival to strike Longstreet's exposed flank, which consisted of Floridians and Alabamians. But as Grant would learn about his adversary in this, his first encounter with Lee, the audacious, aggressive man in gray struck first. Lee ordered an attack, one that in hindsight should be questioned. The objective? Federal positions along Brock Road. A frontal attack against prepared breastworks that obviously favored the defender. No matter, at 4.15 p.m., the Confederate attack rolled forward but was ground up by Union infantry and artillery. Despite the reversal, there were more Confederate attacks on the position. Wave after wave of butternut and gray went in, but they, too, were beaten back. In the fighting, an added terror. Like the day before, flashes from musket and artillery blast ignited the underbrush. Even the Federal breastworks caught flame. God help you if you were too badly wounded to drag yourself to safety, or if you went down alone. While the fighting raged here on the Federal left, the ever-aggressive Lee wanted to hit the Union right. Up at the Orange Turnpike, Brigadier General John B. Gordon had been pleading most of the day with his superior Ewell to launch an attack on what his recon told him was an unprotected Union right flank. Despite the intel, Ewell and the man who had his ear, Jubal Early, discounted the intelligence. Finally, with Lee's urging, and after Ewell's own reconnaissance, an attack was made, one that could have been made early in the morning of the 6th. At 6 p.m., Gordon's men went in just about the time the fighting was dying down to the south along the Brock Road. Just as Gordon predicted, the Union right flank was indeed in air, and all of a sudden Grant and Meade faced another crisis. The 110th and 122nd Ohio were punished. They gave way. Two Union brigadier generals were captured. At the height of this new threat, a field officer hurried to Grant and spat out, General Grant, this is a crisis that cannot be looked upon too seriously. I know Lee's methods well by past experience. He will throw his own army between us and the Rapidan and cut us off completely from our communications. Grant pulled a cigar from his mouth, one of the some 20 he smoked or chewed that day, and fired back. Oh, I am heartily tired of hearing about what Lee is going to do. Some of you seem to think he is suddenly going to turn a double somersault and land on our rear and both of our flanks at the same time. Go back to your command and try to think what we are going to do ourselves instead of what Lee is going to do.
as to Gordon's late afternoon assault. It sputtered out, thanks to the arrival of Union reinforcements, thanks to tangled terrain that tore apart Confederate attack formations, and to darkness, which made Confederate coordination impossible. With attack over and Sedgwick's Union line stabilized, neither army had anything left to throw. After two days, a blasted landscape that screamed of something unearthly. Dense woods, underbrush, ground so very different from the open fields of Manassas or Antietam. One Confederate prisoner of war, a soldier from the 5th Texas, summed up what had taken place on May the 5th and 6th with this. Battle be damned. It ain't no battle. It's a worse riot than Chickamauga was. You Yanks don't call this a battle, do you? At Chickamauga, there was at least a rear. This is all a damn mess, and our two armies ain't nothing but howling mobs. That night, the wood smoldered, and soon the air was fouled with those who had fallen and fell victim to the flames. Some believe this first meeting between Grant and Lee, a tactical draw. From the bloody two-day encounter, tactically, Lee learned that Grant was no McClellan, no Burnside, no Hooker, and soon he would learn strategically as well. And truth be told, Ulysses S. Grant may well have underestimated Lee's unquenchable aggressiveness. No question, the Union General-in-Chief learned from his two days in the Virginia wilderness. He realized that in the immediate future, he would have to be far more specific in his orders to Meade, and he would have to tighten up an army that never seemed to be able to pull all its triggers at once. Outwardly, Grant handled the two days of stress calmly and with self-possession. Often he was found puffing or chewing a cigar and whittling. But according to his chief of staff, John Rollins, when John Gordon's late afternoon attack on the 6th was finally repulsed, Grant retired to his tent and threw himself down on his cot and instead of going to sleep, gave vent to his feelings in a way which left no room for doubt that he was deeply moved. He had reason to be moved. In two days... He suffered 17,666 casualties, but that official number was falsified for fear of Northern reaction. Safe to say that Grant and Meade lost 17% of their men. Two brigadier generals were dead and two captured. 209 federal officers mortally wounded. Across the way, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia suffered anywhere from 7,750 to 11,000 casualties, 13 to 18 percent. And the two-day battle Lee once again demonstrated great personal bravery and benefited from sloppy federal planning and reconnaissance. Southerners believed that Grant and Meade had been so severely punished that the encounter had to have been a Confederate victory. Yet if so, one person in blue did not agree, and he was the most important. Differing from any previous Union general in the Eastern Theater, Grant refused to acknowledge his casualties. He refused to give up the thing Lee coveted, the initiative. 
And that in no way surprised General James Longstreet, the man who years earlier had served as Grant's best man at his wedding. When first informed a few months earlier of Grant's promotion to General-in-Chief, he warned Lee, that man will fight us every day and every hour till the end of the war. That observation was reinforced the very next morning, Saturday the 7th, when at 6.30 a.m. Grant put Meade's army in motion, not back to the north, like every previous campaign, but to the east and south. Now for two battered armies, a race to see which first reached the next major strategic crossroad. And so, a dance of death began that lasted the rest of May and stretched into June. Continuous fighting day after day. A new ferocity in the prosecution of this civil war. The common soldiers of both armies recognized it as such, as did one Union officer who described the hellish night of May the 6th, a night he characterized as one of unutterable terror. He wrote, Forest fires raged, ammunition trains exploded, the dead were roasted in the conflagration. The wounded, roused by its hot breath, dragged themselves along with their torn and mangled limbs in the mad energy of despair to escape the ravages of the flames, and every bush seemed hung with shreds of blood-stained clothing. It seemed as though Christian men had turned to fiends, and hell itself had usurped the place of earth. In Lee and Grant's first clash, some 27,000 casualties. And what was soon coming at Spotsylvania Courthouse, at the North Anna, at Cold Harbor, all would add exponentially to the horror of this new chapter of uncivil war. A chapter that first revealed itself in the tangled woods just south of the Rapidan River, that revealed itself in the Battle of the Wilderness. For the engagement we just covered, I strongly recommend Gordon C. Ray's The Battle of the Wilderness. May 5th, 6th, 1864, which was published in 1994 by the Louisiana State Press. For that matter, each work of his on every clash in the Overland Campaign as Grant slugged his way down to Petersburg. Ray's research exhaustive, his prose lively, vivid. You'll feel as though you were there. I hope you'll join us next time when we return to the spring and summer of 1862, when in response to George McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, a new Confederate commander, Robert E. Lee, unleashed a series of desperate attacks to not only save the Confederate capital, but attempt the destruction of the Army of the Potomac. Please be with us as we spin the story of the seven days. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.